Coming up on Tech Nation, it turns out that YouTube is a whole lot more than just videos. Bloomberg and Business Week journalist Mark Bergen writes about the challenge of keeping up with the hundreds of hours of video uploaded every minute and a surprise for the most watched videos. Take a guess before you hear it here. Then an excerpt from Wired Science editor Kara Platoni's original interview about her 2015 book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, and Physicians Are Transforming Human Perception. It's even more relevant today. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, and the author of Creativity, Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Can Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. I asked him to go back to 1995, to Toy Story, the very first animated movie entirely created on a computer. I asked him, how much was that a technical breakthrough? And how much was it a matter of Hollywood finally trusting technology? Well, it wasn't Hollywood embracing technology. Uh, What it was was a group of people off to the side, outside of the system, Uh, working for 20 years to put all the pieces together, uh, which were initially largely technical. But there was one exception in that Hollywood community, and that was George Lucas. But he truly was an exception. Uh, And so we were located an hour away from Silicon Valley. We're also an hour plane ride away from Hollywood, where George gave us the support in a fairly unique environment. So in our case, it was a little bit of the technology, there was the storytelling part. There was Steve Jobs being involved with it. And there's a, a rather unusual combination, but not coming out through the normal course of Hollywood. This is really sort of a unique way of developing story. Yes, there's a different model. In fact, I would say that for the long form of filmmaking today or storytelling, there are three different models. There's the one that you see on television now where, where you know some of these programs are really very good. And you've got story teams and writers that stay together over an extended period of time, which I think adds to the quality. There's the live-action model where groups go off and then they, they form to come together to make a, a, a film. But then at the end of the film, they disperse. So you don't have any real sense of community on the film. And there's a more a, a random nature to whether the films are good or not. And, and then at, at Pixar, we came up with our own model which is that the filmmakers all stay together at the studio and form a long-term community, and they are a support and help group for each other as they help each other on, other, on their other films. Uh, and for me, it's a great model. So that Andrew, Pete, or Lee, they'll work on their own films, but they'll spend time on other people's films. And it's the fact that they're supporting each other, which enriches them and, and helps draw people out of getting lost in their own films. It kind of put, makes it a storytelling enterprise, and some of the output along the way happen to be films. Oh, very much so. It's this uh, Storytelling is the way we communicate with each other. And you go right from when you write, read to your children 
It's, of course, movies and television, but it's also news. It's our human way of communicating. And there are ways of, of having the form of communication, but ultimately what you want is to connect with people emotionally in order to really connect. And in fact, one of the issues for us was having succeeded, and, and I would say this is true even in Silicon Valley, a lot of these teams, after they succeeded, start to fall apart. So you just think about all these companies, whether they're internet or computer companies, they're very successful, they make a major impact, then something goes wrong. So while they stay together longer, ultimately there are some forces that come in and undo them. And so the central question for us is, if these forces are at play at all times, and I think they are, including here, then how do we pay attention to them so that we can at least address the problems that arise whenever you're doing something new? This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, talks about his only book thus far, Creativity, Inc. In 2018, Ed Catmull retired from Pixar and Disney, and during his tenure, Pixar produced such films as Finding Nemo, Cars, The Incredibles, Brave, Finding Dory, and Coco. His work has been recognized creatively by numerous Academy Awards and technologically by the John Van Neumann Medal. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we discover that YouTube is a whole lot more than just videos. Bloomberg and Businessweek journalist Mark Bergen talks about his book, Like, Comment, Subscribe inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination. Then, continuing the impact of technology all around us, we revisit Wire Science editor Kara Platoni's 2015 book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, and Physicians Are Transforming Human Perception. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Mark Bergen. Mark, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Now, by now, I think everyone knows that people post videos on YouTube. And as the name of your book suggests, like, comment, subscribe. Everyone is, I think, familiar with, well, you post videos out there, but uh, it's much more than that. Yeah, the title's meant to uh, hint at this idea that YouTube has really invented that transition from watching television as a sort of lean back passive experience to an active uh, engagement. And they really wanted and the first to, to encourage viewers and, and audience to participate and you know, comment beneath videos to subscribe to their favorite creators and uh, like the, the like button and all the different signals um, that YouTube uses. And of course, this becomes the data points that the company, rather than doing traditional programming, like we imagine has, has worked for, for decades before, 
Uh, it is programming by machines. It is programming by computer algorithms, uh, and that is dictated by all, all these uh, viewing behaviors. Um, and, and a lot of this is uh, kind of pretty well understood by people that that watch YouTube. But I think a lot of it operates in the, in, in the background and behind the curtain, uh, so to speak. And and my attempt from the book was just a very important, influential platform and company that that hasn't really been uh, a story that hasn't been fully told. Well, 2 billion visitors every month, second only to Google, its parent company, 450 hours of video uploaded every minute. And in terms of impact, 25% of Americans rely on it for news. In a real sense, it's replaced television. Oh, absolutely. And and for a younger generation, it's even more. There was a recent study from Pew um, looking at U.S. teens and, the, and their, their use of social media. One of the big takeaways there is that they, they did this study in 2014 and then uh, fast forward to do it to this year. And uh, teens are not using, surprise, surprise, not using Facebook as much. They're using TikTok a lot more. Uh, it was like 67%, I believe, uh, teens said they use TikTok on a regular basis. 95% said they use YouTube. Uh, it is just a for an entire generation of uh, people, and this is not just here, but, but across the globe too, especially in places where uh, they sort of didn't have a TV in every home, YouTube becomes that primary screen. Many people uh, that listen to the show are familiar with Facebook. How does YouTube differ from TikTok? Oh, good question. So YouTube is, uh, one is, it's been around for a long, it's been around just as uh, it started sort of a few months after Facebook. Uh, it started in 2005. It joined Google in a year later in 2006. And it has uh, since then, in the past decade in particular, really built this system for for like to longer videos. Um, a, a lot of the sweet spot here for like 15 to 20 minutes, these are the ones where, you know, YouTube's business model is advertisers are going to pay to get in front, run a commercial in the beginning of a video, sometimes increasingly in the middle of a video. Uh, and so what that created, those, those uh, the business model incentives there were longer videos that had never been on before on the web and on the internet. And that has birthed just all sorts of, of wild niches and everything from going on, you probably go on YouTube, right, to do your like learn a new yoga routine, to learn how to fix your sink, to watch a music video, uh, to hand your phone to a, a toddler to occupy their time and be a babysitter. The library, it's, uh, it is like Google in the sense that it's just the repository for every video sort of imaginable on the internet. And in that sense, TikTok has come along much later. Um, it is clicked into something that, that YouTube uh, kind of neglected, which is um, short form video, videos that are pretty easy to produce on your phone. Now, some of the most successful YouTube videos are shot and operated almost like TV and, and film with that sort of production budget and cameras. And TikTok is, is much more of the mobile generation and Gen Z. Uh, that's something that, that YouTube is now like seeing in their rearview mirror uh, and trying to address. And would you say TikTok is more in the 15 second to 20 second? Did I get that right, length? Yeah, sometimes they go longer um, up to a minute. And I think, you know, TikTok is now exploring like what they call longer form video. Uh, it's like five minutes and six minutes. Sort of, sort of funny that that's considered longer now. And this was early YouTube was was like TikTok. It was actually like some of the most successful uh, early YouTubers were making these really high production quality, um, inventive uh, short films. And like short skits and like playing around with this this canvas in a way that uh, it, it's hard or difficult for us to appreciate. But but this was you know 15 years ago there was no guarantee to make money on YouTube 
or make money producing video on the internet. Uh, now it's sort of taken for granted, but it, this the the company and the, and the early creators uh, were kind of pioneering uh, in this in this um, this space. And as the book lays out, uh, there weren't weren't a lot of safeguards in place as well, uh, which had some pretty big ramifications. Now, I have to say, you don't have to watch technology too long to realize that it always converges. So the, you know, the YouTubers are looking at TikTok, the TikTok are looking at the YouTubers, and there are other people looking at both of them that they've never even heard of before. <laughs> everything, everything converges over time. And yet you did mention it in terms of how YouTube makes money. Let's talk about how much money it's made and how money gets to creators. Yeah, so YouTube, um, the first part of your question, uh, last year uh, in 2021, they, they disclosed that they've, in their earnings, that they made uh, close to $29 billion in advertising revenue, um, which is remarkable in the sense of like the first, the, the earliest data we have from YouTube that they disclosed was 2017. That was around $8 billion. Um, they also make an additional amount of money, uh, a smaller amount, but from uh, people that will pay, you pay $10 a month to get um, YouTube Premium, which is you can get a, a music service that's similar to Spotify. Uh, and one thing for people like me that watch a lot of YouTube for personal and professional reasons, you don't see ads, uh, which is a big blessing um, for watching a lot of YouTube. So, And they also have a TV service, like an over-the-top sort of streaming TV, like an Apple TV service called YouTube TV. Uh, but most of their money is made from ads. And since 2007, uh, they were a pioneer um uh, of this on the internet, they've been sharing revenue with their video producers. So uh, typically YouTube will, for every dollar that's spent, every time a, an advertiser gives them money to run a commercial, uh, YouTube will take 45% and give the remaining 55 to the video creator. Uh, now that gets complicated when we talk about like managing different rights for music and and like YouTube built a system for copyright. So if, if you uh, intentionally try to pirate some video footage that's its owned by a media company, that YouTube system is in place that like that media company will get the money for that video and that IP. Well, it does bring us into influencers and who is, and I'm going to mispronounce this, PewDiePie? Oh, you actually got it. Oh, it's right. It's yeah. right. It's called, yeah, let me spell it for you. It's P, capital P-E-W, capital D-I-E, capital P-I-E, PewDiePie. PewDiePie's made some bucks here. Yeah, PewDiePie, he's a, he's a character in the book. Um, Felix Schelberg has a Swedish um, YouTuber, a really like uh, early trailblazer in the, the genre of, it's called Let's Play, is what they call, they call it. Um, it is a, a, a critical part of YouTube's success, um, video game footage, uh, in which I'm, you know, he was this a genius at, at making these compelling videos for that he often would play a video game and simultaneously, um, you know, you, you sort of film his reaction to it. Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, uh, is an entire streaming platform largely devoted to this. And, and YouTube was, was I think, one of the first to kind of make this mainstream. Um, PewDiePie becomes an, a fascinating character in, in YouTube's history. Uh, he was, because since starting in 2012, he was, he had the most subscribers of any YouTube creator, this big star, 
he sort of always uh, pushed the boundaries a, a little bit, like in, in his satire and his responsibility. Um, and there's this he his incident in 2017 started off probably the worst year in some of these series of crises that that YouTube has has gone through, uh, and these dramatic changes to how the company and the platform works. And it's like a a really fascinating drama. And I think that's like part of the book is just um, going into that. But he did make millions of dollars. That's right. Yeah, he's made millions of dollars off YouTube. Um, he's you know both... tens of millions, tens of millions, <laughs> just being yeah. him. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's um you know I think there's a really interesting which I touch on in the book a little bit like you know you talk to people who work in sort of with YouTubers or like around YouTube culture and there's a sense that like they they used to talk to say that you know one marker of success for them would be once a youtuber has the mainstream rec uh, recognition of say like a George Clooney or a Brad Pitt uh and so part of it is it's difficult for people to conceive of you know the richest youtuber right now by by many calculations is a 9 year old I believe he's 9 um Ryan Kaji who got his uh he rose to fame on youtube uh toy unboxing largely like he he was growing up as a kid, filming a lot of videos with him playing with toys. And he's like a very charismatic kid, um, clearly doing something uh, that's compelling to an audience. Um, he, I think it was Reddit Forbes had his net worth from YouTube at like 30 million a year, building out this sort of franchise of kids content that doesn't appear on TV and film. Um, these are these are these are stars. They're they're media personalities. Uh, YouTube as a company um, for a long time as the the book shows wasn't accustomed like Google is just not a, like one that's built to manage talent and to deal with um, the complexities of of building out like what it means to have a media business and have celebrities and 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 they launched thousands and thousands of careers like that without a lot of like infrastructure in place to deal with uh, the pressures of fame, which we all are familiar with. Um, and the new sort of pressure of fame that, that YouTube introduces, which is that your fans not only know you, but they think that they they know you personally, uh, which is this really fascinating phenomenon that, that YouTube um, created. And I don't think we've quite grappled with as a society. Bring in the psychologists. We have to explain this. <laughs> I mean, we got to find out, you know, a whole new thing of uh, know thyself. I don't think, Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think the Greek philosophers really had this in mind, but here we are. There's a bunch of people saying, you know, I just don't have anything to do with this. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, a PBS NewsHour, big YouTuber, you know, big YouTuber. And, and frequently, you know, you talk to you know, celebrities and they say, oh, yeah, 100 million followers. And you're like, what difference does that make? Now we know why. <laughs> yeah, it's I think it's it is embedded itself in the culture. I think most and, and this is. um. I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead. The question too, like, there's been a lot of scrutiny of Facebook, as as you and your listeners know, uh, and the consequences that that the platform has had on democracy, right? On 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 addiction, on on how we like relate to one another. Um, YouTube has is not often brought up in those conversations, but this, the same dynamics. Uh, it, it's a, it has similar dynamics, right? YouTube's dealt with conspiracies. They've dealt with misinformation. They've had a hard time policing hate speech, harassment, um, you, you name it. Uh, part of the reason that it hasn't had uh, as much scrutiny and, and the book is sort of a call for like, hey, let's pay attention to this important thing um, is because most people's, whether they're journalists, uh, politicians, uh, regular people, their interaction with YouTube is often as a utility is sort of in the background. They just, oh, I can... Whenever I can go on, I can find this clip. And it is this marvelous archival 
uh, instrument, right? Like I, I'm still uh, shocked the amount of I, I love jazz and like, oh, wow, there's this footage of Miles Davis playing in like 1962 here, like and it lives for free on the Internet. Right. And that had profound that's profoundly changed the way that media works in the, in the business of media and, and Hollywood is still sort of frantically adjusting to that. But I think that that it serves both a um, a role as this repository and library and at the same time also has a lot of problems around uh, political speech um, and a lot of problems around uh, like how people characterize uh, different religions and faiths and communities and and um, all the sort of uh, ills that we're too familiar with now. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Bloomberg and Business Week journalist Mark Bergen. You may know him from his long-term coverage of all things Google, as well as technology and media for Recode, and business and economics from India for such publications as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's here today with Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Well, you mentioned... Facebook, and you mentioned religion, uh, and uh, you opened the book with a mass killing inside a mosque in New Zealand. Now, describe what happened and how it relates to YouTube. Yeah, this is uh, uh, just this visceral moment. And um, so this was in 2019, in March of 2019, it was a shooter, a white supremacist, uh, who went in uh, to a mosque and another Islamic center in Christchurch, New Zealand, and, and murdered 51 people, and live stream the act on the internet. Um, and this is something that you know was unfathomable a few years ago, and now is easy easy to do because of the way that these platforms work. Right? We can we've they built a way, and and YouTube was the context here is that YouTube at the time was like trying to compete with with Facebook, which was um, had its live feature, and and so they were kind of prioritizing live videos. That video actually like wound up on on Facebook Live, which was a YouTube competitor, and then it came on on YouTube, and and the company. Um, you know, had there there are people at the company, um, both that work there, and then they've they have a bunch of like outsourced contractors that have to sift through a lot of this uh, footage. And once it's flagged as violent, uh, to determine you know is is this they have like a lot of um, elaborate written rules about you know is this this is violate our rules about graphic violence and hate speech. Like clearly that they decided that video did. You know the other kind of collateral damage. It's often if it's if it's archival or news value, the company sometimes wants to keep that on. Um, you know, there's ex- ex- interesting examples about the Syrian war, where sometimes like e- YouTube is the only place in the internet and in the world where they have these valuable records of devastation and human tragedy. And so the company's trying to balance that. And so this was a a, a tragedy. The, the the other reason that it uh, implicated and, and, and drew in YouTube, um, there were two. One was the, the shooter, uh, what he said bef- before the act was subscribe to PewDiePie. And so PewDiePie at the time was the world's biggest YouTuber. There was this meme to sort of defend him after he'd had a couple rocky years from the reporting I've had and, and others. The shooter was not like a PewDiePie fan at all. This was a, a catchphrase that was just viral, and it was meant to get attention. Uh, and we've seen this really dark pattern repeat itself in, in, in Buffalo more recently. But the the New Zealand 
government did a report afterwards and and said um you know they came out from their analysis of of the of the terrorists saying that he was influenced by ideas that he'd watched uh, on YouTube and this notion that um immigration in and muslim immigrants in particular were this this strong threat to uh western society and uh these uh, dangerous rhetoric and ideas uh, that had spread on the internet for a long time, and and after that moment, it was a, as a major turning point when when YouTube uh, then introduced new hate speech rules, and it said in videos you can't go out and um, make comments about a protected class and a group like like Muslims or immigrants, um, and that's dramatically changed. They've since deleted uh, you know many channels and videos uh, that were doing that, but this is a this is a continuously difficult problem that the company sort of set up, which is they, they the, the whole premise of YouTube is that anyone can broadcast themselves and then anyone can make money from it. Uh, and so now in, in the past uh, 17 years and starting, they've been trying to uh, clean up clean up the damage um, from that system. Well, YouTube's recent brand mission for a number of years was give everyone a voice and show them the world. And when you invite all of humanity, you get all of humanity. That's right. And... Um, how you control it, how you disinvite, you know, particular voices or messages. It isn't easy if you're getting 450 hours of video every minute. And unlike a restaurant. I think the recent number is, is 500, actually. Ah, jump to <laughs> 500. Oh, no. Yeah. So unlike a restaurant, you can't post a sign which says no shirts, no shoes, no service. Um, is filtering out undesirable content even technologically possible? That's a really good question. The difficulty that YouTube has, let me take a step back, is that uh, unlike Facebook and Twitter and other parts of the internet, um, text is, is relatively easy to analyze. Video is much more difficult uh, for like our current machine learning systems and software um, because it includes uh, text sometimes and audio and visual. And it has, you know, there there's it's just longer and, and meatier problems. So my understanding is that Google is the world's largest and, and most powerful artificial intelligence company. And even they, you know, I had this this a quote in the book from from a senior executive there is like he's like you know people think that because we have self-driving cars that we can we can solve this problem it's like sometimes we can't even tell what people are saying in a video um so that is that is a problem and that then and then youtube wants to solve things with machine intelligence as much as possible uh in in part because they know that you know relying on humans uh makes them susceptible to um uh, Donald Trump and, and other Republicans have accused him of conservative bias. They, they want to steer clear from that as, as much as possible. Uh, it is Trump dramatic work uh, monitoring the Internet like this. And so they, I think they want to rely on fewer people as possible. You know, stats that YouTube says is that their machines are able to identify videos that violate the rules. Uh, over 95 percent of them can come down just by machine intelligence. Um, but a lot of the, the like a lot of the trickier areas, you know, we were, I was talking about um uh, the great replacement theory, which is this, this right wing notion that and white supremacist notion that that um, right, that, that like immigrants are a threat to white society. Uh, and so conversations about immigration and, and like YouTube is really hard to train machine to say like you that the fact that I brought that up right now, like, am I endorsing that philosophy or am I just discussing it as a political framework? Right. Am I. Um, and so YouTube, you know, they, they opened up the world in which not everyone 
you, you don't have to have a news anchor. You don't have to have a, a cable TV show. You don't have to have a newspaper to be a media uh, personality or a media company. And the ramifications of that are who's a media company, right? Um, and so these are decisions that even if they are, even if they were able to build up the world's uh, like a, an artificial intelligence system that could identify every time I say a particular word or, or move my hand in a particular way, it is up to human judgment to make decisions there. I'm speaking with Mark Bergen, the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotechnation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of Whole Technation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, more about how science and technology are changing us or helping us find who we really are. Wired Science Editor Kara Platoni talks about her 2015 book, We Have the Technology. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Bloomberg and Businessweek journalist Mark Bergen. His book is Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Even if they were able to build up the world's uh, like a, an artificial intelligence system that could identify every time I say a particular word or, or move my hand in a particular way, it is up to human judgment to make decisions there. And that's sort of what I was, I think I wrestle with that in the book and I want readers to get this idea that, that, you know, this, there are human beings at this company making decisions, even if they're making those decisions in code uh, that are important and and worth scrutinizing. And so what's nightmare fuel? Oh God. Um, uh, Nightmare fuel was uh, the, one of my main characters in the, in the book, uh, her name is Claire Stapleton and she worked on the marketing team at, at YouTube. And I think the marketing team at YouTube is, is deeply fascinating for a variety of reasons. One is so Susan Wojcicki, who is YouTube CEO was Google's first marketer and I, and, and a very good marketer and, and YouTube is what well, YouTube's a marketing company, right? It, it works. Um, it, it's business model is, is selling ads. Uh, and it's actually, it's like a, 
pretty decent. It's very, it cares a lot. People in the company care a lot about the brand and the integrity and how people outside of YouTube view YouTube. Nightmare fuel was a term that some people in the marketing team came up with for this daily, I think it was daily, sorry, regular email they had. Um, that was, uh, the, you know, the, one of the issues with YouTube is it's just so vast and that they, the team started, um, around 2017, 2018, it's actually, uh, started where, when a, a famous YouTuber named Logan Paul, some of your audience may know him, he's now a famous boxer, um, shot a YouTube video in, in Japan, uh, in which he showed, uh, uh um, a man who had committed suicide and kind of hanging in a forest, um, and this got is one of a series of like disasters for, for YouTube. Uh, it happened uh, during the the holidays, and so a lot of people weren't working there. Um, and after that, the company is like, okay, we need to keep tabs on the most outrageous uh, things that were happening on the site. Uh, the the kind of things that our marketing team just needs to know about, which is a, a ter totally like smart and savvy thing to do. But for the employees I spoke to, they called it nightmare fuel because it often had this um, this way of, of making them think that their platform just reflected the worst parts of, of humanity. It was such an incredible ride. And then you find out these little bitty, you know, pieces of information and uh, about the decisions made, such as removing the count of dislikes on the dislike button. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> that was a recent uh, a recent decision. Um, I you know it's I guess we could maybe take the simplest explanation there, where like uh, YouTube is under pressure, and I think the employees themselves like like they want to they want to see the internet as like a positive place. They want to see YouTube as a as a positive place. Um, and uh, I maybe I think there are people there that if they could go back in time would never have introduced the thumbs down button on a video. Um, and that's what a dislike is. The, the other context here was I believe the record for the most dislikes on a video before that was actually a YouTube, like YouTube's own video. Their, their company has their own account. Um, and they made a video in, in two, 2018 that it was YouTube Rewind, their yearly, it's this yearly... Um, feel good video where they like do all the caps kind of a recap of the year with all the creators and at this point it was like one of the the low points for the the company's relationship with its um its creators is and and their fans uh and that video had it began with uh will smith oh. who everyone in your audience probably know uh who is uh most decidedly not a youtuber right like this was uh something that i i upset a lot of YouTubers and understandably, like they also had, uh, um, John Oliver on there. Right. And, and the host of the daily show. And that was one dynamic. The second one was YouTube was, um, growing so internationally. And I think, uh, the book is spends a lot of time on the U S and just because I, you know, could only tell like a certain amount of stories, but YouTube is gigantic in India. Uh, you know, has as many monthly users there as, as there are people about in the U.S. Like, just think about that. Um, huge in Brazil, huge in Russia, huge in Japan, Korea, Mexico. And so they, what this video did was it started to introduce, um, because YouTube was trying to 
uh, appeal to global audience, introduce creators from all across the world. And if you're like a, a dedicated fan of a certain YouTuber here in the U.S. and they're like, why is this? I don't know this YouTuber there. You know, uh, and so I think this I thought it was a there's, a there's a whole chapter in a book that unpacks this for a moment of, of like this. Um, it's really telling uh, time in the company's history where, um, uh, you, you know, what's the, um, that phrase, the lunatics taking over the asylum kind of thing. Like, um, it, it felt very much out of their control. It became the most disliked video. Uh, they stopped doing the, the YouTube rewind from then. Uh, they've, they've also, you know, their, their justification for taking away the dislike button, which is, uh, totally, um, understandable is that it yeah, YouTube has been this force for harassment for a long time uh, and misogyny in particular. Um, and so there, there are people that will go out and like trolls that will dislike flood a video with dislikes that the, uh, what happens then is it buries the, you know, the more dislikes a video, that's like bad sign of engagement. So it's less likely to appear in your search results and your recommendations. And so it's effectively a way of like, killing the traffic on a video. And I think YouTube saw that happen enough. I, they were pretty late. They were very late to responding to harassment, particularly from uh, female YouTubers and uh, LGBTQ fem uh, YouTubers. Uh, but this was this is part of their attempt to address that. You really get the picture that there's a lot of dynamics that they are trying to figure out 24-7 every day for the last, you know, almost two decades now. Um, uh, you do say, uh, you you do point out that uh, YouTube content is primarily creators, music labels. We can see that. You want to see a lot of music out there. And traditional media. I did mention the PBS NewsHour, but all of them have, have a big presence on YouTube. Um, how many creators do they have? Oh, God. Oh, that's a really good question. I'm sure that someone at YouTube knows that answer. Uh, yeah, I didn't see it, so I was like, they have. They, I think the most recent number they they listed was so they have the the, the partner program is is what they call the the uh, the way for if if you are in the partner program you can make money off your videos, uh, and I believe the most recent stat was three million now in the partner program, so that's three million channels on YouTube that are making money. Now that I fairly certain also includes the. You know, Jimmy Kimmel's like the Taylor Swift's so like the, the the big traditional media. Uh, that number is smaller than what it was a few years ago. So the book, uh, one of the arcs of the book is is this. They made this decision in, in 2018 to dramatically reduce the number of creators. I think it was my reporting is like maybe twice that many that were making money, which is at the time and still is like the largest sort of Internet economy there's ever, ever, ever <laughs> point. Ever, ever, ever. Period, that's yeah. right. Yes. There you go. There you go. Ever. Uh, now, we haven't talked about Susan Wojcicki, YouTube's longtime CEO. We haven't talked about a lot. But I want to ask you this one last question. What don't the baby boomers know about YouTube that everyone under 30 does? That's a really good question. Um, Mr. Beast? You think that your your audience knows Mr. Beast? Mr. Beast, sure. I think mostly they don't. <laughs> um, he is he's right now probably the most popular YouTuber. I, I will answer that two ways. So that yes, there are. I think there are figures like that who are um, Mr. Beast is is young. He's under twenty five. He's um, 
has over 100 million subscribers and it's sort of like the hot YouTuber at the moment in part because um, he's incredibly popular and he's so far uh, not done anything to flaunt, like to, to put YouTube in hot water uh, for it's like a, a godsend for the company, right? Um, and so they just had him at their most recent advertising conference. I think the thing that I, I not even... Uh, I would say that most people, not even under 30, that most, if you go on, so there's a site called Tube Filter, which is a really great resource for me. And it's like a billboard for YouTube, sort of. They keep track of the most popular YouTube videos and they, they constantly update and it's a really reliable place. If you go on the Tube Filter and look at the most popular YouTube videos by traffic, by vol by views, it is consistently videos for, for children, for under five. It is nursery rhymes. That is feel like the top channels are all videos that are designed for your five-year-old, your four-year-old, your three. And I think that's something that uh, the company has took a long time to come to terms with and, and actually admit. And it's, I don't think it's something that's registered in, uh, enough for people that, that YouTube is the world's biggest kids entertainment service by far. Uh, and it's very understudied. Um, talk to researchers, right, and, and pediatricians and experts in this childhood development, uh, it is unclear what the, uh, like, what's the impact of, uh, of having you know, YouTube raise our children. Well, there you have it. You're a parent. You got kids. You got to, you know, do something. <laughs> no, the baby boomers didn't know that, well, I, but they I know think... it now. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we also I should say we also have many listeners who go right down to that, you know, mid twenties. So they're all like going, Yeah, yeah, you found out. It's true. We gotta keep uh, these kids managed, you know. So uh it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the other thing about that's unique about about YouTube is it doesn't most people probably don't know who runs it. Um, and, and the people like, it's not like Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg for better or worse is a, is a known entity. And, uh, the book is an attempt to, um, take people inside the, uh, the actual, uh, human beings and decision makers, uh, at this, at this important place. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. And we've got plenty to discuss. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I hope so too. Thanks so much. My guest today is Mark Bergen. His book is Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. It's published by Viking, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In considering how we individually and collectively are being changed by such social media entities as YouTube, it's important to remember that all technology changes us. Wired science editor Kara Platoni talked to this precisely in her 2015 book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, and Physicians Are Transforming Human Perception. I know it says we have the technology on the cover, but I wanted to make a big argument that technology is not just gadgets and computers and things that light up. Technology is anything that we as a people have made to be useful to us, to help us. So in my book, I say that the technologies that affect perception are not just wearables and implants and gadgets and all these cool 21st century sci-fi things. We get a lot of those books by, things where, Yes, I know. <laughs> but tools like language. Language is a technology. In my 
book, I have a chapter that's about perfume, the science of smell. Well, chemistry is a technology. I have a chapter about pain, and the technology in there is Tylenol, or rather the generic acetaminophen, this idea of a painkiller that alters how we feel pain. So, yeah, technology surrounds us all the time, and there's a lot of things that we just accept. We don't even think about them being technology anymore. You and I were eyeglasses wearers right now. Well, a lot of the people I spoke with for my book would argue, well, that basically makes you a cyborg. You're wearing this prosthetic that alters what you can sense. It gives you superpowers. Well, most of us don't think of the eyeglasses as being this radical technology. It's just something that we've adapted to. It's something that's so interwoven into not just everyday life, but actually we think of it maybe as part of our face that it just seems normal to us. Like having your iPhone or smartphone. Oh, gosh, yes, right? It's <laughs> an extension of my hand. <laughs> yes, and not just an extension of your hand, but an extension of your memory, an extension of your ability to communicate with other people. Um, I hadn't really thought about how intimately the iPhone was a part of my life until I started researching this book. When I was exploring other more novel gadgets, more radical gadgets, uh, things like, you know, s smart glasses and the idea of implants or other extra things you could add to your body. Uh, and then people I was talking to started saying, you know, you're already carrying around this portable device that has amazing surveillance technologies, capabilities. It has amazing tracking abilities. It, it has a camera in it. It uh, allows you to communicate with somebody anywhere on the planet anytime you want, and it's in your pocket. And you don't even notice that it's there. I have to say, for the first time ever, I realized that the players on Star Trek would be envious oh, yes. of what our <laughs> smartphones can do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Never but, you know, they get to be in space, so I still think they, have the, I think they have the edge up on us. Well, let's start with pain. You were talking about Tylenol. I remember uh, UCSF psychiatrist and neuroscientist Amir Levine, uh, he was talking about a broken heart and how it really is physical pain and that Tylenol really does help. Of course, you also say, you know, if you just ask a bartender, you'll find out the same answer. Right. Oh, this was so fun to learn about. But there is a actually quite large body of research right now that says to your brain, the pain of social rejection, the pain of a broken heart and physical pain, the pain of a broken bone are essentially the same thing. It's the same part of your brain reacting in the same way. And so just as you were saying, there are researchers who've done these really interesting experiments where they put somebody in an fMRI scanner and they give them Tylenol or the generic acetaminophen and then they socially reject them. And it's actually really hard to socially <laughs> reject somebody who's lying in an fMRI scanner. I don't just... know. I feel like I'm at the dentist's office and I, I feel totally rejected. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're lying there. They can't move. So the first wave of ex experiments, what they did, and this actually seems really horrible to me, but they, they showed people pictures of somebody who had recently broken up with them. So you had to look at the picture of your lost love. Then in the next wave... Stab in the heart. I know, right? And then the fMRI <laughs> is looking at you. And the fMRI sees that your your brain moving, and it's not just uh, one shot. It's yeah. tracking it's tracking brain activity, kind of using blood flow as this proxy for seeing which neurons are active. So it's showing this real-time picture of what's going on, which regions of the brain are active. And they're seeing that the pain regions are lighting up. 
up when people are socially rejected. And then in the next generation, what they did is they had people lie in the scanner and they said, okay, you're going to play a game. Kind of, It's called cyberball. The idea is we pass the ball back and forth. After we've passed the ball back and forth, the computer starts leaving the person out, starts passing to these other imaginary players, right? Well, the person doesn't know that this is just a program on a computer. There's no other real players, but they still feel rejected. And so in these studies, they found that people who were taking the acetaminophen, the Tylenol, felt less rejected. Then some other researchers came along and they said, okay, let's try this in reverse. Let's see if love is a painkiller. So what we're going to do so we're going to put people in the fMRI scanner, and we're going to give them a physical pain, an actual uh, slight burn. It feels kind of like a sting. And we're going to do this while they're looking either at a picture of their, their romantic partner or at a picture of an equally attractive stranger. And lo and behold, love is an analgesic. It reduces the amount of pain that people report that they feel as they're staring at the photo of their beloved. Wow. Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you, science is getting into all kinds of things. It is. Well, so for this, I, I wanted to write not just about uh, academic studies. And, of course, it's very hard to observe someone in an fMRI scanner. There is just You just see their toes as peeking out from the machine. So I wanted to find some people who have experience with the pain of rejection in real life. And I thought, well, I could interview therapists, but there's patient confidentiality rules. And plus, that would be a very gloomy interview. So instead, I went to bars and I hung out with bartenders because I thought, who knows the pain of romantic rejection and offering advice to strangers. They could all write books. More than the bartenders. They were fantastic. The bartenders I talked to were wonderful. And I thought it is not a coincidence that bartenders are dispensing, you know, a legally available painkiller. Alcohol, right? Yes. Along with that romantic advice. So I had a lot of fun uh, talking to people about the pain of rejection and whether it is as real to you and feels as painful to you as uh, the pain of an actual physical wound. And there's actually a, a pretty interesting evolutionary biology explanation for why this might be so. So the idea is physical pain is a warning sign. It tells you stop doing the thing that you're doing. It's, it's injuring you. It's bad for you. Same thing with social rejection. If people are stepping away from you if they don't want to be involved is probably because you're doing something that is bad for the group. It's putting your personal bonds at risk. And humans, we're social animals. We need other people. So we need a warning sign that says, hey, knock it off. Stop doing that. And also, anecdotally, I thought the bartenders came up with some interesting frameworks. They say, women come in, they talk about this. Guys come in, they talk about that. Let's go there. What do they see as a pattern? Yeah, oh, well, it I might... presume you went to a lot of bars, a statistically significant number of bars. <laughs> well, how many would it have to be to be statistically significant? I, uh, a I'm... thousand. <laughs> no, no, 30. 30? 30. 30, I'll do it. No, yeah. I, d- I did not go to 30 bars. I went to... I'm, I. I went to three, and two of them are in the book because, um, wow, one of them was just so good. Uh, One of them was one of my local bars, the Nightlight in Oakland. And the bartender and owner there, John Knackley, just turned out to be an amazing philosopher of broken hearts and lost love. And so what he was saying is when women come in, they're always picking his brain, saying, why why did the guy do this? What's he thinking? What's going on? And when the guy comes in, he just says, she left me. You know, (laughs) and I was asking him, hey, what about other forms of social rejection? Do people come in and they want to talk about the job they didn't get, the team they didn't make? And he said, oh, it's love. That's what people care about. That's what they that's what they want. Drives them to alcohol. (laughs) Drives them to alcohol. And to conversation. You know, it's kind of funny. The bartender is sort of your captive 
audience, right? So people yeah. really pour them their hearts out to the bartender while the bartender is pouring them a drink. And I thought, who else in our society does this? Who else might be in this position? And the one person everybody suggested was hairdressers. It's oh, a, my God. Right? Isn't there confidentiality with your hairdresser? <laughs> like claws? You would not believe what I and my, all of my female friends tell their hairdressers. Yeah. Barber's probably not the same thing. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I think the, the, the salon and the bar are these public spaces where people feel comfortable talking about things of the heart in front of other people. And the, the bartender and the hairdresser are just people that you trust, people yeah. you open up to. Hairdressers, six weeks. It's like, well, what's happened in the last six weeks? Whoa! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. So let's talk about another chapter, one that's familiar to us all. It's, it's an overwhelming sense when you're young. It can diminish over time. It can stop with a medical condition. And yet it's much integrated with our brains and our whole being. That would be the sense of smell. Oh, I loved researching this. This was one of the first things that I got started on. And I kind of stumbled across, by, by reading science papers, I stumbled across this fact that shocked me. I had, I had no idea, which is that loss of smell is the first clinical symptom of Alzheimer's. It's also a very early symptom of Parkinson's disease. I had no idea, but I started looking into this body of work and I thought, how could this information be of practical use? And it turns out there are people who are thinking very creatively about how to use this. And one group of people says, Look, a smell test for Alzheimer's would be a great early indicator. It would be a non-invasive test. It would be cheap. A scratch and sniff test would be something you could easily take to a developing country where there's not a lot of infrastructure for medical testing. It would be a wonderful early warning sign for people who are having problems, and it might even help us diagnose people earlier and develop better treatments for them. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, so one part of my book is I went to see a man at the University of Pennsylvania who has developed this amazing, almost like an obstacle course of smell tests. And once every month, his lab lets non-smelling members of the public come in and do this kind of round robin of tests that he's invented, smell tests that he's invented, including scratch and sniff tests and this amazing test where you kind of put your face in this, it looks like the diffuser of a hairdryer and it blows <laughs> a, a, like a scent like rose oil at your nose. All of these cool tests that he's developed for early diagnosis of smelling problems. And then the other group that I talked to was this amazing group of women in Paris, France. They are all members of a group called Cosmetic Executive Women, and they are women who work either in the cosmetics industry or are retired perfumers. And what they are doing is they are using smell as a way to help people with Alzheimer's recall lost memories. So what we did is we went to the geriatric ward of a hospital, and Anne Camilli, who was my host that day, uh, who had trained as a perfumer, has a very sensitive nose, had the sense of 10 fruits. And she would open this little glass vial and dip a little paper wand in. And she and her assistants would wave it under the noses of the people in the ward. And she would say, Madame, what is it? And the people would guess. They would say, oh, it's, I think it is orange. And I think it was, is lemon, right? And sometimes a person would have a memory to share. And the women who run this program say, it is amazing the memories that pop out uh, for people. They told me this, this story of a woman, 99 years old, who they gave her the scent of orange blossom. And she said, 
this made me remember going to Tunisia as a young woman uh, on a day that they were harvesting oranges. And she told them the story about the orange blossoms in the trees and how at the time men and women had to walk on opposite sides of the street. They told me the story of a man who was a retired banker who just who didn't talk. And then one day they gave them, him the scent of wine. And all of a sudden he launched into this long story about being on a tasting tour with his wife. And the women in this program said to me, and with Alzheimer's patients, you open a drawer and a little memory comes out. And then a few minutes later, the, door, the drawer closes again and that's it. The person doesn't recall having talked to you. It's just been this moment of pleasure, this moment of communication. So they invite family members to come and to participate because they say it is a way to remember that your loved one is still that person that you know. That person is still in there. Their tastes, their memories are still in there. And there's a scientific reason for why smell is so evocative. In fact, scientists think that smell is probably the first sense that any animal had, not just humans, any animal. We're talking all the way down to single-cell organisms. This thing that they call a chemical sense later became smell and taste for us. Even for very primitive organisms, it was something that said, that's good, eat it, that's terrible, don't touch it, it's poison, or, you know, that's your species, go mate with it, right? Yeah. And, uh, and this evolved into the sense of smell. So it's a very old section of the brain that synaptically is very closely connected to memory and emotion and, uh, and, and, and it brings up all of these feelings. So the neat thing about the idea of what they call olfactotherapy or smell therapy is that it works even for people who have a neurodegenerative disorder. And I should say, please, don't don't freak out if you don't smell as well as you used to because all of us, our sense of smell dulls a bit as we age. That's normal. So one of the things that they had developed were a sense they called alerts, which were things like the smell of leaking gas because mm. they wanted people to, to be able to recognize that. But it, interestingly enough, there is a similar program happening right now in Singapore, which is a country with a totally different kind of smell palette, a different cultural idea of what smells are salient to you or fond memories from childhood. So while the French group had developed the smell of wine and bread and they had even developed the smell of blood because they were working with hospital patients and wanted them to be able to talk about trauma, the group from Singapore had developed things like curry and tamarind and the smell of the seashore. And they had even done the smell of opium because a lot of elderly people grew up in a time when people did smoke opium and they had developed the smell of the fireworks that people use at Chinese New Year and all of these wonderful evocative smells. And they told me a wonderful story about how they had given uh, the scent of jasmine to a man who was of Indian descent, lived in Singapore, but was of Indian descent, because they said, jasmine is a beloved smell. It will bring back good memories. And when they gave it to him, he said, oh, it's roses. Well, it wasn't. It was the wrong memory. He was having trouble distinguishing between the two smells. But they said, that's okay. What does roses remind you of? And he said, girlfriends. And they said, oh, what does, what does that mean? What is girlfriends all about? And he told them this story of how, as a young man, all the boys at his all-boys school would buy flowers for the girls at the convent school across the street. And that is the magic of smell therapy, I think. I've been speaking with Wired Science editor Kara Platoni. Her 2015 book, We Have the Technology, How Biohackers, Foodies, and Physicians Are Transforming Human Perception. It's published by Basic Books. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.